If you would, please turn to the Apostle Peter's first letter. You may still have a finger or a bookmark there. Um, Pastor Darrell read most of the first chapter. I would uh, like to read um, the first 12 verses of chapter 2. However, the very first word of chapter 2 is so. So what? Um, I think, I, I don't know about you, but I need a little context in the so. If you're going to say so, I, I, I want to know so what. So I'm actually going to uh, start at verse 22 of chapter 1 and then read through verse 12 of chapter 2. I ask that you uh, follow along and let God's word speak to you. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of the flower like grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercies. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. May it accomplish all that he desires. Thank you, Tim. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to First Timothy, or First, First Timothy, First Peter, uh, chapter two. Uh, I want to thank Andrew and really all of you for praying uh, for this upcoming uh, trip to Romania. We are eagerly anticipating uh, leaving, Lord willing, to a week from tomorrow. So Monday, the twenty-fourth, is the scheduled time where Shelly and I and Tim and Chris Casper will go to Romania. We'll be there for two weeks. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more next week about that and all of what you can be doing to, to pray for us while we're there. But uh, this week we ask that you would just really pray that God would help us uh, have a good week of preparation. Uh, I still have um, quite a bit of um, study to, to do to put together my final um, teaching notes for uh, the second week of uh, the Bible College. Um, Tim and I both will be preaching um, more so the first week in various uh, churches uh, in the Demuk Valley. The second week we'll also be having some opportunity to preach. Our wives will have some opportunity with the ladies. Uh, there will be a number of meetings where they'll be gathering Together, we'll do a lot of visiting in homes, um, just a lot of time um, over meals. And so pray that God will prepare our hearts to be used how he wants to use us um, to really build up the church in Romania. We're looking forward to that opportunity, and we're thankful for you as a church that uh, supports and um, in so many different ways over the years, but... Uh, you praying for, uh, for us, praying for our travels, praying for the effectiveness of ministry is invaluable. And so we, we covet your prayers and we thank you for that. As I mentioned earlier, our sermon text for today is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. But before we go there, I, I want you to listen, we've read it earlier, but I want you to listen to what Peter has already told us about what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do for his people who are in Christ, strengthened by his spirit. So I'm just going to kind of walk through what we've already read to just highlight. Here, here are some of the things that God's done for us in Christ. We're chosen by God. We're sanctified by God. We're sprinkled or cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We're made citizens of God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom. We're elect exiles. Great mercy has been given to us. He, he has caused us to be born again from the dead. He has given us a living hope. He's given us an inheritance that will never perish or fade we're guarded by God's power till that day. We're given an inexpressible joy, even in the midst of promised suffering. We're experiencing the salvation of our souls. Promised grace is given to us when, uh, is promised for us when Jesus comes again. 
He has promised to make us holy. He has ransomed us from empty ways of our forefathers by the blood of Jesus. Our souls have been purified so that we can genuinely love one another. We're born again through the living and abiding word of God, which is growing in us, in, in us, giving us nourishment to grow, building us into a spiritual house, giving us access to serve and worship God, making us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, making us a people that belong to the true and living God. Wow. We, we are, if, if you are in Christ, you are richly, richly blessed. We have been given a hope that never dies. The grace of God gives hope to God's people who are living in a place away from home and sometimes suffering unjustly. P Peter writes to encourage God's people to stand firm in the true grace of God. But if we are living in a place away from home and sometimes suffering unjustly, how, how should we live in that time frame? That's the question. And that's what Peter is going to answer for us here this morning. How should you live as God's people in a world that can be hostile to Jesus Christ? Now, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, is the bridge between the first half and the second half of this letter written by Peter. In the first half, Peter's focus was primarily theological with occasional application to life. In the second half of this letter, Peter will focus primarily uh, on how to practically live out as God's people with Obviously, some shorter theological statements included at, at key points. The first half of this letter focused on what God has done for us in Christ by his spirit. And we were told to be holy. We're told to love one another. And Peter gives some specific instruction, instructions showing us how to practice holiness, how to love and how to have hope in God in actual, real-life situations. And one of the things that we see here in verse 11, he begins by just saying, Beloved. So Peter addresses them in a very personal and a very warm way. Uh, Peter is addressing people that he dearly loves, but even more importantly than that, who are loved by God. <laughs> You and I, if we are alive in Christ, we are, we are loved by God. And Peter acknowledges that. And he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And, and then he tells us a number of important things. One, he emphasizes that as you live as a sojourner and an exile, don't forget who you are. Don't forget your purpose, your God-given purpose. God created you and God saved you to declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why you're here. That's why you have breath. That's why your heart beats. 
That's why you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. What a privilege it is to declare the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't, don't forget that you have become the people of God because of his mercy. He has not treated us as we deserve. Instead, he has poured out his favor upon us. And as an exile, an exile focuses on his status or identity as a resident alien. That's what an exile is. You have been given the right to live here in this world, but your real citizenship isn't here, it's in heaven. Uh, as a sojourner, a sojourner is one who is residing here in the world temporarily. So we're here this is where God's planted us. This isn't our home. We're here for a season. And both of these words speak of the fact that Christians are not at home in this world. This isn't our home. Our, our permanent home is in heaven with Jesus. And ultimately, it'll be on the new heaven and the new earth. But the key is that we'll be with Jesus, even as we saying here this morning. Think about that day when we'll see him face to face. Peter says, I plead with you to not forget who you really are. You are God's people. This is not your home. You will, you will feel out of place in this world in so many ways. You, you belong to Jesus Christ. You are longing for the day when you'll see Jesus face to face. And because God has called you to be his people and to speak of his excellencies, he instructs us here to abstain from fleshly desires today, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And as we think about that, we have to recognize that these fleshly desires wage war on your soul. First uh, Peter 5, 8 and 9, we read this, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. So be aware of that. There is an enemy an enemy of your soul. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, an opportunity to destroy your life. Ephesians 6, 10 and following talks about the, the need for us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he is scheming. We have an enemy. Uh, realize that these fleshly desires, the evil one even, wages war on your soul. So what are these fleshly desires? Well, first, let's just define the flesh. Um, the flesh, when, when New Testament writers speak of the flesh, is not talking about your physical body, your bones, your, your skin. Instead, the, the definition of flesh is really remaining sin in your life, even as an, a believer. Tim Pasma 
has described or defined the flesh in a very helpful way. He says, it's the incurable addiction to self. The incurable addiction to self. We're, we're wired naturally because of sin to pay attention to self, to love self, to promote self, to defend self, to make much of self. So by definition, the flesh is an incurable addiction to self. So though as a believer, we are a new man in Christ, there is a presence of sin in this world and in this earthly existence that remains even with the old patterns of our living that will not depart until we are made completely new in glory. This stain of sin that remains includes anything that puts your own self-serving interests ahead of Christ. So it is an incurable addiction to self in that self-centered desires will persist until we are with Jesus in glory. So we have to be aware of that and use the tools that he has given to fight against self-serving pleasures. We, we have to guard our hearts. There's this desire for us to be respected by people, to be recognized by people, to be valued by people, to be uh, loved by people. We don't want to experience any unjust treatment. And in times when those expectations aren't met, it's very easy for us in our flesh uh, to begin to excuse all kinds of sinful uh, behavior, to demand that we're respected, to demand that we're recognized or loved or treated in right ways. But the good news is that we are here uh, as an exile, as a sojourner, but we are not without help and hope. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. <laughs> so our, our flesh, we have, to, we have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And we do that by the Spirit that's been provided. Jesus gave us the gift of the Spirit so that we can, we can mortify the flesh. We can put to death the flesh. That incurable addiction to self. That, that sinful, natural inclination to elevate what we want above all else. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, there's a listing of the works of the flesh. I'm just going to kind of read through it. Here, here are some of the things that we have to put to death. And so li listen to this list as we, as we walk through it. So if we are alive in Christ, we have the Spirit, and the Spirit enables us to put to death sexual immorality, to put to death impurity, to have an impure heart, to care more about promoting self than promoting the glory of God to put to death sensuality, to put, to put to death idolatry, anything, anything that we make more important than God, to put to death sorcery, to put to death enmity, to put to death strife in relationships, um, 
Do you ever experience strife in relationships? Do you ever live in broken relationships? Are you ever mistreated? Man, we, that's, that's where we live today. We live, we hurt other people. Other people hurt us. And there can be strife, but by the Spirit, we have to put to death strife. We have to put to death jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Those are the things that we have to put to death. Those are the things that if we live according to the flesh, the flesh will flourish in us. But if we keep in step with the Spirit, what will be produced in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, Do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world... So how do you understand world? Really, the world is, is, is life without any reference to God. So life without any reference to God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in him, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, this person is not from the Father, but is from the world. Uh, Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Galatians 5.21b says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things or those who keep doing such things without repenting will not inherit the kingdom of God. So understand that we are sojourners. We are temporarily residing here in this world, but our real identity and our citizenship is with Jesus. The, the solution to not, the solution is not to live in a commune, to just separate ourselves from the world. We are created and we're saved with the purpose of being salt and light in the earth. We live with uh, unbelievers. We live in relationships with people who are in the world all the time. God sent us there on a mission. We, we live in the world. So the solution isn't just to, to try to find a way to, to get away from the world. Um, and I kind of grew up in, in a culture where it was, it was thought that the world is bad, but we're good, and so if we just stay away from the world, we'll be good. But the reality is that the world is within our own heart. The flesh is within our own heart. Remaining patterns of sin still exist. So we need the Spirit to put those things to death in our life. The solution is really found in the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection set us free from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. The, the hold of the evil one has been broken, as we sang even this morning. The gospel has given us a new desire to be 
holy for God's glory. And Christ has given his spirit to dwell with us to progressively sanctify us. So there's great hope for us, even though we are exiles, we're sojourners, we're living in a place away from home and sometimes suffering unjustly. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 say, say this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And I tell you what, those two verses are filled with so much hope. Um, the grace of God has appeared. And in this context, it's Jesus. Jesus has appeared, and he brings salvation for all people. And that salvation that he brings is at work in us, training us. Um, this whole idea of training, it, it takes effort on our part too, but this, this grace that is pure, this good news of Jesus trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's possible to do that because of this grace that has appeared, because of Jesus, because of his work in our life today. We can change and grow. And you and I know that our flesh can be stubborn and strong. Remaining old patterns of sin sometimes linger, and they're hard to put to death. Wrong, sinful thinking is hard to change. Old patterns are hard to break. And if we look just at our experience, sometimes we might lose hope. But if we look to what is revealed to us in Scripture, there is great hope. When we look to Christ and when we learn of what He has done for us by His Spirit, there's great hope that we can change, we can grow. And so we can now, and in fact we must now, choose to abstain from the desires of the flesh. So if you know something is wrong, the Spirit convicts you that this is wrong, then don't do it. Trust the Spirit's work in your life. There's, there's never a good reason to do what is wrong. We must say no to the flesh and say yes to the Spirit. And again, think about Romans 8.13. For if we live according to the, the deeds of the body, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will die live. Second main point is this, because God has called you to be his people and to speak of his excellencies, live in a way that will honor Christ your king. That's your focus. That's what you're looking at. That's what you desire. Um, the text says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. Um, conduct your life your, your conduct is how you live in this life. Uh, Peter's mention of Gentiles here is a reference to unbelievers. So those who, who don't know God. So the, the desire that God wants you to follow in your heart is to live your life in a way that is honorable or that is, that is right in God's eyes. So what matters 
most to you in life, should not be what you want or what you think you deserve, but what does Christ deserve? What does he teach me? What does he command me? So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So what's honorable is what is right in his eyes. You, you will conform to God's will for your life when you obey Jesus' commands for his glory. You, you have been created and redeemed to declare and speak of his excellencies who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you'll, you'll do that for his glory when you live sum, submitting to the, to the sweet authority of Jesus Christ and, and eager to learn and, and grow and you are paying attention to him and you seek him and you, you want to obey him. The text says, so that when they speak against you as an, as an evildoer. So here's, here's the critical context that's really being addressed. You are, going, you, you are going to rub shoulders with people who are unbelievers, who are enemies of God. They are not born again. And they may speak against you because you are a follower of Jesus they may falsely accuse you. They may even slander you. They may spread false reports about you. Two things are very important. One is if you give in to the desires of your flesh in your response to them, you, you won't honor Christ and you make, an easy, you make yourself uh, as an easy target among um, unbelievers. So if you're mistreated, as, as you live as an exile in this world, and your response is to, to, to follow after the, the desires of your flesh and not submit to the sweet authority of Jesus and respond the way that he wants you to respond, um, you will become an easy target for unbelievers. More importantly, if you do what is right in God's eyes for his glory and you suffer for it, you are blessed by God. Uh, this is a theme that's going to be repeated a bunch in this letter written by Peter. Um, however, if you give in to the desires of your flesh and you suffer for it, you, you get no benefit from that is what Peter really teaches us. So how you respond, or, how you respond to uh, unjust treatment how you respond when people sin against you and hurt you. They slander you. They say false things about you. Um, they, they mistreat you. How you respond to that becomes very important. And again, if you give in to your fleshly desires, you may be tempted to fight back um, and sin. Fight back with your own selfish desires and sin. But if you keep in step with the Spirit, you will respond as Jesus responded, and you will put what the Father wants ahead of what you want. Uh, another person's sin against you should never, ever become uh, permission. Uh, it should never give you permission to sin against them in return. Um, not this past week, but the week before, Shelly and I were in Memphis at 
uh, a conference, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Uh, we were at a dinner there, and uh, I was with uh, Shelly and I were with Brad and Sherry Brandt, who I served with in Wheelersburg. Uh, there was another couple that we met for the first time, and then some dear friends that we haven't met for many, we haven't seen for many years that were there. Um, Robert Jones, he lived down in Hurricane, West Virginia, not Hurricane, West Virginia, as it, you would think it would be, but it's Hurricane, down in Hurricane, West Virginia. And when we lived in Southern Ohio, we had an opportunity to do some ministry with them, and it was just a neat time to uh, kind of catch up. But Bob asked me a question while we were eating. He said, Daryl, he said, when you, when you were there in Wheelersburg for five years serving with Brad, what did you learn from Brad? I thought, that's a great question. And the very first thing that popped into my mind was the fact that while I was there, the church went through a really, really difficult time. And Brad took a lot of, he was slandered, he was mistreated, people spoke against him in very ungodly ways. And um, in many ways, I, uh, we came in, we just were there with him, we walked with him, we we, we prayed with him, we supported him. Um, but one of the things that really stuck with me as I watched Brad is that I can honestly say I never saw him respond to all of this unjust treatment in his flesh. He didn't lash out with anger. He didn't start calling people a bunch of nasty names. He, he didn't get this real bitter spirit towards them. He just responded in the spirit again and again and again. He was weary. He was tired, but that left a real impression. And as we were sitting around the table and Bob said, what did you learn from Brad? That's the first thing that popped into my head. And that's what I shared. I, I just watched Brad respond, not in the spirit or not in the flesh, but in the spirit again and again and again, when he was provoked, when people poked him, when people mistreated him. And praise God for that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, there's a passage that many times we, we went to again and again through all of the things that we went through down there. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, that's not the flesh. <laughs> that's not what the flesh produces. That is what the spirit produces. And then the text goes on and says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That, that's a great text that helps us to know how to respond when we are mistreated by others, when we're treated in unjust ways, when people uh, say all kinds of false things about us, when they attack us verbally and, and, and so forth. Um, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, 
correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's what the the Spirit produces. So how you respond becomes one big way how you minister to others for the sake of Christ. So you're mistreated. People say nasty things about you. And your response is a golden opportunity for you to serve them and to minister to them. The text says here in 1 Peter 2 that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there is no good reason to do wrong and suffer for it. So don't dishonor Christ and don't make yourself an easy target for unbelievers because nothing good will come from that. However, if you do what is right in God's eyes, especially when you are mistreated by others, we are told here that they may, they may see, and the word that's used there for seeing is this long, reflective look at your life. So they're watching you. So if you are mistreated, we're told here that they may, and you respond in right ways, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So how you live and respond when mistreated is a great way to minister to your enemies for the sake of Christ. So what, what is this day of visitation, though? Uh, my first thought when working through this text is that it speaks of the day of judgment. But after looking at how this word is used throughout the New Testament, I think it's better to think of it as a time when God is clearly doing something specific in the life of a person. A day when God visits is more likely a day when God is doing the necessary work to bring someone to faith in Christ. Um, Acts 15, 4, Luke 1, 68, verse 78, verse uh, Luke 7, 16, or some of the places where I think we see that. Plus, this idea that they will glorify God on that day points to God using your gracious and merciful response to their sin against you in an even evangelistic way in their lives. At, at first, I thought Philippians 2.10, where we are told a day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ and Lord, which will result in God being glorified. I thought 2.11 there in Philippians is saying that at the judgment day, your enemies will be forced to admit that you were right. However, this idea of your enemies coming to a place where they glorify God is always what a believer will do. Wayne Grudem has observed that this term, glorifying God, is used 61 times in the New Testament, but never to speak of unbelievers being forced to admit that God or his people have been right. So here's the point, and I'm going to end with this. Here's the point. When your conduct is honorable among unbelievers, 
and you suffer for doing what is good and right in God's eyes, God may, God may choose to use your testimony of Jesus to save your enemies. It's up to God. It's outside of your control. But God may use your testimony of grace and mercy to your enemies to bring them to faith in Jesus. That's enough reason for us to have this desire to abstain from the desires of the flesh, especially when we're mistreated. And to live in a way that is honorable, even if you suffer for doing what is right in God's eyes. Uh, most importantly, in that response, God is glorified. And secondly, God may save your enemies through your response. It's an opportunity to serve them for their good and God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful as we think through this text. We're thankful for Jesus who came to this earth and was mistreated in horrendous ways who was beaten and flogged and mocked and who was crucified um, after an improper jury came together. Trial was, was done in wrong ways. Jesus being falsely accused and crucified for things that he was not guilty of. And yet in that, he trusted you. He trusted his heavenly father. He submitted to the will of his heavenly father and he lived out his life and he died in submission to your will. So father, we are, we're challenged by that example. You certainly teach us to follow the example that he set. And I, and I pray that you would help us. Lord, we live in a world that we, we are becoming more aware of, of many around us who, who are quite vocal about their displeasure of you, their hatred of you, and oftentimes we as believers take shots. And Lord, in those times when we're mistreated, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you by your spirit would be at work in us so that we would respond in ways that that are honorable, that are right in your eyes. I pray that you by your spirit would enable us to put to death fleshly desires, help us not to defend self and protect self and promote self. But Lord, help us to identify with Christ and live with the power of your spirit and to do what is right in your eyes, no, no matter what happens to us. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to live for the glory of your name and Father, for, for those that are actively speaking against you, we pray that your mercy and your grace, and we pray that even our, the testimony of our lives would speak of your mercy and your grace and be used by you to save them and to bring them to a knowledge of the truth and to escape from the snare of the evil one who has taken them captive to do his will. So, Father, I pray that you would work in us and through us 
to save our enemies for the glory of your great name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.